0: Is everybody, cold. I love uh, one of the few things that I actually enjoy about preaching is when I uh, when I could come up here without my in-ear monitors in, and uh, actually hear what you say when I ask how you're all doing. Because usually when I when I'm playing music, I've you know I've got because I've got the the fallback in my ears. I'm like, how's everyone doing? And I'm just going to assume that you say good. Uh, so it's great being able to to actually hear you and uh, I'm sorry that I can't hear you but uh, uh, I'm sure if you type how you're doing in the chat then uh, Caitlin can tell me how you're doing and and that'll be that'll be close enough Um, well it's wonderful to be here with you on the lands of the Gweagal people worshiping God this morning Uh, why don't we just open in a word of prayer May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, we've just spent uh, six weeks in the book of Luke, and uh, now it's very exciting because we get to spend eight weeks in the book of Acts, so this is kind of like our sequel sermon series series. To uh, to what we've just had. So my what I'm really trying to say is don't just delete the last six weeks from your mind. I know that's a very easy thing to do. And when, when there's a new sermon series, go right out with the out with the old, in with the new. Um, but uh, everything that we sort of talked about over the last six weeks, um, will be good to keep in mind. It'll sort of still help frame, uh, what the book of Acts is about. Because the book of Acts, um was, of course, also written by the same person who wrote the book of Luke. Let's not get crazy about, you know, who that actually was. But it was definitely written by the same person who wrote the book of Luke. Um, And you can, I don't know if you, oh, yeah, that slide's on the screen. You can see it there. You can see it on our little poster outside of work, subtitling this series, The Acts of the Holy Spirit. Now, you're probably more familiar with the name the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, it's usually what the book is called and it's shortened to Acts. Um, but that uh, name was, you know, it, it was invented in the second century um, by a bloke called Irenaeus. Uh, so it's not, it doesn't actually, you know, it's not actually the title of the book as intended by the author necessarily. So we're going to allow ourselves a bit of freedom and liberty here Uh, A fun little fact that I learned was that the word Acts actually only appears once in the book of Acts and uh, doesn't refer to the apostles. It refers to the Acts of uh, the followers of the apostles or something like that. Anyway, so we're having a bit of creative license here. We're calling it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Um, And the reason is because we're going to be looking at the entire book of Acts, covering a lot sort of in each week. Um, And each week is going to be framed by a particular obstacle or state of affairs that should have put an end to the new movement of Jesus' followers were the movement not from God. So something's going to happen in, in every section that we look at every week that really should have put a stop to the gospel except for the work of the Holy Spirit. So it's the acts of the Holy Spirit in the church, in the early church, that we're going to be looking at. And the, uh, the first one that we're looking at this week, which is uh, on the next slide, is the absence of Jesus. The gospel cannot be stopped by the absence of Jesus, when really it probably should have been. Jesus, the leader of the movement, is gone and the movement should have probably fizzled out without him. In fact, we'll hear later in Acts from someone else, I think it's in Acts 5, that uh, that exact argument was made to the Sanhedrin by the rabbi Gamaliel. He said, look, if this isn't from God, then it should just, it should just fizzle out. Their leader's gone. It's, eh, there's been thousands of messiahs before, all those movements ended, this one will too, unless it's from God. Now, we just had Easter 50 days ago, literally, because it's Pentecost, and that's what uh, Pentecost means, 50 days. And um, at Easter, we often talk about what the disciples must have been feeling between the death of Christ and the resurrection. We often sort of talk about what their mental state must have been locked up in the room together, panicking, worrying, thinking this is the end of everything. And sometimes we can be a little bit unkind to them because we're sitting here with the benefit of hindsight going, really guys, it was only 36 hours. You couldn't keep it together for that long? Um... But that's, that's, you know, not very fair of us. Uh, so I think it's, you know, fair to say that they would have been very upset. But what we don't talk about so much is the time period between the ascension of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And that must have been a fairly similar time because Christ wasn't dead. He'd come back to life and, and that was, you know good and, you know, hopeful to a degree, except that he just disappeared up into the clouds again. He just goes for a second time. And this time it's not 36 hours that they're left leaderless. It's 10 days. And again, we can look back at that with hindsight and go, oh, it's only a week and a half, you're fine. But uh, it must have felt so much longer for them and we can see that they still didn't really get it. So it's not like they they were there sort of knowing what was going to happen and not worrying. They probably had fairly similar anxieties. So we're going to look at... Uh, a couple of verses from Acts um, chapter 1, verses 4 to 5. Once when he, Jesus, was eating with them, the disciples, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they must have gone, what? What does that even mean? And to be fair, uh, we still kind of say that a bit in the church. What does being baptised with the Holy Spirit mean? And I decided to do uh, a little Google to find out. And uh, I'm going to do it actually right now live so I can show you what happens. Is, uh, uh, I'm going to go to Google and I'm, just, I'm, not even, I'm not even going to ask what it is. I'm just going to type baptism of the Holy Spirit... And uh, the first hit, as you might imagine, is from Wikipedia. And the first sentence in Wikipedia says, In Christian theology, the baptism of the Holy Spirit has been interpreted by different Christian denominations and traditions in a variety of ways. Very unhelpful. And so following that, uh, we've got, Um, an article from uh, John Piper, Desiring God. We've got an article from GotQuestions, Christianity.com, ActiveChristianity.org, Crosswalk, uh, ApostolicFaith.org, and so on and so forth. And they are all asking, what does baptism of the Holy Spirit really mean? That's an actual headline, by the way. What does that really mean? And when you look at the little sort of snapshot of the... um, of the page underneath, each one is slightly different. So if we are still very confused about what this means, you can imagine how confused the disciples must have been when Jesus says, yep, I'm going to go, but uh, don't worry, very soon I'm going to baptise you with the Holy Spirit. And in the very next verse, you can see their confusion. Verse 6. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Is that what the baptism of the Holy Spirit means? And I think there's a good chance that at this point, even after Jesus' death and resurrection, they're still thinking politically. They still haven't quite realized what Jesus means when he talks about his kingdom. They're still thinking Is God going to show up and overthrow Rome and set us all free from the oppression of Caesar? And Jesus says, look, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. They're not for you to know. And he shuts it right down. And then he refocuses on what he thinks is the important thing that's about to happen. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, through Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after saying this, he was taken up in a cloud while they were watching and they could no longer see him. Which must have been very disconcerting, given that he'd only been back alive for about a month. And as they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. So they're literally just standing there like, what just happened? Where is he going now? So the incredulity is real and it must have stuck with them for a long time. So given the disciples in this position of dumbfoundedness and incredulity, what do we think they did in that time? And the Bible gives us an answer of one thing they did, and surprise, surprise, it was kind of dumb. So this newly leaderless church, is gathered together, and what happens is one man, Peter, puts himself forward to be the new leader. Now, to be fair, Jesus had said to him, you're the rock on which I'll build my church. So there was some precedent for thinking maybe it should be him that steps forward. Um, But this is what happens. So during this time, about 120 believers were gathered in one place, and Peter stood up and addressed them. Brothers, he said, the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who guided those who arrested Jesus. This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit speaking through King David. Judas was one of us and shared in the ministry with us. And then Peter continued, this was written in the book of Psalms where it says, let his home become desolate with no one living in it. It also says, let someone else take his position. So now... We must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus, from the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken from us. Whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. And so they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, O Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle, to replace Judas in this ministry, for he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other 11 and was promptly never heard from ever again. The end of the story. So what happens here is Peter decides to take matters into his own hands. He's got this sense that... Uh, that they need to refill their twelveness. Right? Uh they need to live out their identity as a new kingdom. They need to live out their identity as a new Israel. They need to be twelve, because twelve is important, and there were twelve tribes and everything. There needs to be a, a certain twelveness to their apostleship. And Peter decides: look, the, the the scriptures say that he needs to be replaced, so let's replace him. Let's pick a couple of people and roll the dice and if it's you know one to three it'll be justice and if it's four to six it'll be uh it'll be Matthias and uh in Peter's defense there's biblical precedent for this in Proverbs 16 uh the NLT says we may throw the dice but the Lord determines how they fall um, the NIV has it slightly differently. It says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And cast lots is the, the phrase that we just read in, in Acts. So there's there's precedent for maybe saying God has a hand in uh, in in you know the randomness of casting lots or throwing dice. Um, but but what they do is they limit God's options. They took it upon themselves to say, got to be one of these two. You get to pick which one, but it's got to be one of these two. And uh, I want to suggest to you that that wasn't God's plan. I want to suggest to you that Peter got up and said, all right, need a new apostle, God. Scriptures say we've got to replace Judas, so... Justice or Matthias? You pick. Go. And God said, Saul, obviously. But uh, but Peter didn't give him that option. And uh, when, you, when you think about that, because often we kind of think about Saul as a separate 13th apostle kind of thing, um, which, you know, might be fair because he seems to have a bit of a different call to the other apostles going to the Gentiles rather than to the Jewish people, um, but given that we never hear from Matthias ever again, after this one instant where he's chosen, um, I've I got to wonder whether really it was meant to be Saul who was the 12th. And when you put him in that place of the 12th as replacing Judas, that's kind of nuts because leaving aside for a minute the fact that Jesus was God and there's a certain eternalness about him that makes him, you know, more important and more valuable than regular people, right? Just leaving that aside for a minute. Judas only had a hand in the death of one person. And maybe he was hedging his bets. Maybe he went... Jesus has, you know, gotten out of scraps before. They were going to throw him off the cliff and he, you know, slipped through the crowd and he got out of it. And he keeps talking about, you know, something about, you know, rising from the dead. And to be honest, I, I could do with 30 pieces of silver and I could do with currying favour with the chief priests. So maybe, maybe, maybe I'll hand over Jesus and he'll get out of it and it'll be fine. I mean, we don't know that he thought this, but he might have done. And in his hypothetical defense, Jesus did get out of it in a fairly short period of time. He came straight back from the dead, and, uh, and it was all good. Saul, on the other hand, orchestrated the imprisonment, torture, and death of an unnumbered amount of, <laughs> of new believers it could have been in the hundreds it could have been in the thousands we we don't really know but uh he went to many different towns arresting people and he cast his vote for their death many times it says so kind of on paper saul is kind of a lot worse than judas certainly in in quantity of people that he was part of killing, if not in, you know, quality, I guess. So that would be an absolutely crazy thing for Peter to think. And no wonder he didn't think it. He thought, you know, one of these guys, they've been here the whole time. They're from the baptism to the now, and they're good guys like us. They just weren't part of the 12. One of them. And, and God went, no, I have someone else specifically in mind, and you're not going to like it, but, like... In January uh, Josh preached kind of a character study on uh, on Simon Peter. So if you remember that, then um, you sort of know what Peter was like he uh, He put his foot in it frequently and was known to say and do some very, very dumb things and These are the hands that the church was left in. Jesus was gone, apparently. We can look back and go, oh, well, Jesus wasn't gone. But but apparently Jesus was gone. And the church was left in the hands of Peter. And uh, it should have stopped. But it didn't. Because God had a plan. And God sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came just like Jesus said it would, but maybe not in a way that they would have expected. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. But the biggest miracle of all, and I know I'm bashing Peter a lot this morning, but the biggest miracle of all is that Peter all of a sudden becomes very eloquent. He preaches a really excellent sermon. And uh, if you compare the sermon that that Peter preaches here with the little homily he gives about replacing Judas, um, it's like night and day. And I don't know. I was trying to think of something to compare it to. The only thing I could think of is that I don't know if you've you've read or ever seen um, Julius Caesar by Shakespeare. But uh, I'm I'm sounding very pretentious right now, I know. But... uh, there's a, there's a funeral scene for Caesar because, spoiler alert, he dies and um, Brutus and Mark Antony both give a little eulogy, okay? And uh, Brutus sort of stands up and he's, um, he's, he speaks in, in prose and he's very blunt and he's very to the point and he says, look, I liked Caesar and he was a good bloke but we had to off him because, you know, it was good for society. Anyway, that's that. And then Mark Antony gets up and he speaks in this, you know, you know, flowing poetry and everything's metered and it's pleasing sound to the ear. And, you know, he says some of the, the m- most famous lines that Shakespeare, you know, you know, wrote. He goes, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar not to praise him. And what Shakespeare is sort of doing in terms of, in terms of literary construction by contrasting the prose and the poetry is he's contrasting the skill that these two men have speaking. And when I was reading through these two little talks by Peter, I was struck that it's very similar. The first little homily that Peter gives is very blunt. It's very to the point. It's not very well constructed or spoken. But this sermon in Acts 2, and it's longish, it's most of the chapter, so we're not going to read it all out, but I encourage you to read it in your own time. It's beautiful. It's eloquent, the... The thoughts connect to the other thoughts and are interspersed with, with references to the Old Testament in a way that sort of links the whole idea. And when, um, when, when the Bible says, sorry, we just go a few verses ago. Um, uh, no, backwards, sorry. Yeah, can we go to uh, verse four? Yeah, I'm just going to get it up on my phone because I I don't know how that's actually laid out. My bad. Okay, and there we go. Uh, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking another language as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Right? And I've got to think that the Holy Spirit gave Peter this ability to speak more eloquently than he had ever spoken before. And leaving aside any discussion about speaking in tongues or speaking in other languages that's that's kind of a miracle in and of itself given what we know about peter the fact that he can all of a sudden speak so compellingly is because of the holy spirit not because of anything that he necessarily had in himself and what happens as a result of this 3,000 people believe in the gospel because of Peter, because of the Holy Spirit. And not only do 3,000 people believe, but a community is created fellowshipping, eating together, praying together, learning together, sharing property and possessions sharing money and meals, and enjoying the goodwill of the public, which is not something we can really say for the church today that it enjoys the goodwill of the public. But that's what the scriptures say. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. Um, there, there, I've seen some translations that suggest that that's 3,000 men, so there were more women and children. Uh, but I, either way, like... That's a lot of people from a single sermon. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over all of them, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and their possessions, shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Now, I, I imagine that you probably have a good sense of how this applies to our current situation. We just lost a leader recently. And uh, that leader was with us for 15 years, not three, like Jesus. And uh, it's been what, well, March, April, three months now, not 10 days. So I think it's fair to say that we must be feeling very similar to how the disciples felt during that period of time, before the Holy Spirit came. And it would be so easy for us to pull a Peter and grab an immediate replacement. We could go, oh no, Simon's gone. What are we going to do? Josh is going to solve all our problems. He's a co-chair of the council. He's a Lee. That must count for something. He's going to solve all of our problems. Or maybe... Maybe we'll go, what are we going to do? Lachlan's going to solve all our problems. He's up there every week singing his songs, playing his guitar. He even speaks on occasion. He's going to solve all our problems. Or maybe Pauline can do it. I, I've, I've, heard, I've heard that one thrown around. we have got a task to do. Oh, Pauline can do it. Or maybe let's look a little bit further afield. Maybe Cameron's going to solve all our problems. He's a reverend. He's got connections. He's got big ideas. He can fix everything for us. Or maybe Rob. Maybe Rob will solve everything. He's coming for a and a tomorrow. Uh, Alyssa will tell you a little bit more about that after the sermon, but he's coming for a Q&A and maybe you feel like one of your cues is, can you just like come and solve all our problems, please? Because it's hard and, uh, and you're a reverend and, and you can do it. And I want to say that we're really blessed to have all of those people involved in the life of this church. Maybe except for me, standing up here, calling you all out on it. But... Uh, We're very blessed and uh, we're very grateful for the contributions that that everybody makes. But um, I think it would be wrong of us to pin all of our hopes on one person just because we find ourselves leaderless. God has a plan for this church and uh, maybe it'll take 10 days to be fulfilled Maybe it'll take nine chapters. Saul doesn't have a conversion experience until Acts chapter 9. Maybe it'll take nine chapters. Maybe it'll take murder. Maybe the person who's going to come and be our new leader will kill a bunch of us first. It sounds drastic. It happened in the Bible. (laughs) There's precedent for it. I very much hope it doesn't happen. Don't get me wrong, but... My point is, whatever happens, whatever God's plan is, it will likely be, in fact, it will hopefully be something unlike anything that we can possibly imagine. Until then, we can have community together. We can share our meals, we can share our possessions, we can pray together, we can learn together, we can fellowship together, we can spend time with each other, we can do it on a Sunday morning, we can do it on a Wednesday morning at cafe, we can do it at a life group, we can just go and have coffee together outside of regularly scheduled programming. We can expect... Miraculous, wondrous things to happen because we have something now in our time of waiting that the disciples didn't have in their 10 days. And that's we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come, the Holy Spirit is with us. So we can expect the wonders and the the miracles to happen in our community while we wait for God's plan for us to be fulfilled. We have community. And we have the Holy Spirit. We have everything we need. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come upon us, breathe in us, and stir in us. Remind us of the gifts you have given us for your good work here on earth, to love one another, and to meet our neighbors' needs as you have called us to do. We know when we love one another, we are loved. When we care for one another, our needs are met. Your Spirit intercedes and binds us together. May we be open to the movement of your Spirit in our world, in our communities, and in our lives. For you make all things new. Call us into the faithful work of your Spirit's love. Amen.